Continuing through the Gospel of St. John, we come to chapter 6. And all of you who are normally in the catechumen classes, the inquirers classes, all of those are contained. I've asked you to be in here today, and Deacon Peter and I talked about this at the beginning of the week. I was reading uh, the Gospel of St. John in chapter 6 and looking at the content And the content is infinitely about, in fact, it's the most teaching that Jesus will do specifically about the Eucharist. And it's very specific. And so I talked to Deacon Peter. I said, how much have you covered of the Eucharist in the catechumen classes? And he did cover it in one of the sessions that y'all did called the sacraments. So it was talked about as part of all of the sacraments. And as I kept going through the week, it became very clear that this would be a very good thing for both our inquirers, our catechumens, and the faithful in the Orthodox Church. It is always incredibly important to be reminded of this incredible sacrament of the Eucharist. Not only to be reminded of what it is, what Jesus does, but the grace of God that's given through it for the life of every soul, for the salvation of every soul, for the forgiveness of sins, for every soul that takes the Eucharist. And so that's what we're going to look at today, and that's why I've asked you all to be together. But I want to start with this. Before we get into the Gospel, I want to start with the liturgy itself. Because the church teaches us that the liturgical prayers whether they're Vespers, whether they're Matins, whether they're the hours of prayer, morning, noon, evening, compline that we do in our homes, no matter what it is, when we pray those prayers, we pray truth. Because Jesus said we'll worship Him in spirit and what? Truth. And so in all of those prayers, whether they're praises or whether they're asking for things, supplications, we are praying the divine will of God. We are praying something of Him so that we take that into ourselves by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit. So I start talking about the Eucharist from some things that we say. And I want you to listen to each of the prayers. And by the way, I'm taking snippets. I might as well read you the whole Mass. But I'm taking snippets to point out some truths that you're going to hear Jesus express in the Gospel of St. John in chapter 6. And we'll hear the Father's as well. So, you hear this in low mass, because I pray it a little bit louder, because there's really nothing else going on, and I like you to hear these prayers. During our high mass on Sundays, you don't hear this because the offertory is being sung. The the offertory, if you remember, is when the gifts to be offered, the bread and the wine, are being brought to the altar so that Christ will bless them, and they will become for us His body and blood for our life and salvation. So that's the offertory. And in that time, the priest prays these pra- this prayer. Listen to see if you hear what God is doing or offering through Eucharist by the prayers. The priest prays over the offered bread, the host. Receive, O Holy Father, almighty everlasting God, this spotless host, which I, thine unworthy servant, do offer unto thee, my God, the living and the true. For my countless sins, offenses, and negligences, for all here present, and for all the faithful in Christ, both quick and dead, that it may be profitable both to me and to them for salvation 
unto eternal life. What's the flesh of Christ? What is the body of Christ given for? What does it say? Salvation. Salvation. Then the priest immediately prays over the offered wine, just after that at the offertory. We offer unto thee, O Lord, the cup of salvation, humbly beseeching thy mercy, that it may go before thy divine majesty with a sweet savor for our salvation and for that of the whole world. Okay, we already said salvation. Did anybody pick up on something else that comes through the wine? The blood of Christ. Humbly beseeching thy what? Mercy. Thy mercy. We all pray together the prayer of humble access. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear son Jesus Christ and drink his blood. Now listen. That our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body. And our souls washed through his most precious blood. And that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Now we had two more things added to it. Through the taking of the Eucharist in that prayer of holy access. What are we saying? That our sinful bodies and souls may be what? Washed. Washed. Made clean. How? Through His flesh and blood coming into us. The holy coming into the imperfect, making it holy. Isn't that beautiful? That's, that's what we're praying. But it goes even further. That we may evermore dwell where? In Him and He in us. The greatest point of union that Christ has ever given His people is in the Eucharist. We touch physically body and blood, bread and wine, and are joined to Him, and are joined to Him. In our prayer of preparation to receive Eucharist, we all pray this. And I believe that this is truly thine own immaculate body, and that this is truly thine own precious blood. And make me worthy to partake of thine immaculate mysteries unto remission of my sins. And unto what? Life everlasting. Through the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, taking that into ourselves for the forgiveness of our sins. But secondly, something else. That being joined to Him, the perfect to the imperfect, by being joined to Him, that we may have life everlasting through this sacrament, through this union. You get that? That is just a touch of all the prayers we pray regarding what the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ offered through bread and wine does for us. And I dare say, if you're like me, and we're all together in this, I think, we do the Mass over and over again, we have a tendency to mouth words. When we really ought to press, does liturgy not mean the work of the people? That means we have labor to do. And part of our labor is joining ourselves to the very words we pray by the Holy Spirit. Offering them to God as God is fully present, always offering Himself to us. And there the union occurs. Okay? This is what we're talking about. Father? Yes? When you started on this part right here, Uh you said something about 
the Eucharist is. Would you make that statement again? The Eucharist is. We're talking about Jesus. This is in the Eucharist, Jesus joins with us. Yes, he joins himself to us. Do we not take him literally as well as spiritually into ourselves? Physically, is there not union as well as spiritually? I think that may have been what you said. That ring true there? Okay, good, good. Everything we just prayed, by the way, is what Jesus says about the Eucharist in John chapter 6. And that's why I wanted to go over it first. Because let me tell you what our journey is going to be today. We're going to look at John chapter 6. We're going to look very specifically, literally, at everything that Jesus says His body and blood is. That He is the bread of heaven. We're going to look at that. Then I want to take you on a journey through the first five centuries of the church. I'm going to read from one church father, every generation following Christ. And what each church father says about the Eucharist. And you will see that it is harmony. It is all perfectly in union with what Jesus said His body and blood was for, what it is. What we say in our worship and what the church fathers, the church believed and taught and still teaches today. But I just want to give you the first five centuries of the language of the fathers teaching us. And then we're going to talk about how we approach this based on what we see. We're going to look at that. Okay. So allow me to set this John chapter 6 up. At the beginning of John chapter 6, we have the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Remember, he takes a few loaves of bread and some fish. He takes it and blesses it and feeds the 5,000 to where there's 12 basketfuls still left over after he's done. He performs that miracle. Then he is, he is tired. He has ministered all day long because he didn't just do this. We find if you look at the harmony of the Gospels, he was healing the sick, casting out the demons. He was teaching the realities of the kingdom of God, and he's doing this miracle. That's a full day, isn't it? Right? So he and his disciples go away. Many were so impacted that as they saw Jesus get into the little boat with his disciples and go across the Sea of Galilee, they follow him all the way across the Sea of Galilee. Now, if that blows your mind, don't let it. I've been to the Sea of Galilee, and anybody that's been there, it's a pond. I mean, we think of sea, and we think of huge body of water, but I've been out in the middle of it. When I say pond, it's a lake. Um, but I was out right in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and you can look and see every shore. So when I was out there, this picture came to my mind after Jesus had done this incredible miracle, how he had left and gone across the water, and they would be able to visibly see a crowd following him to the other side so that when he landed, they were there. They, he may have been tired, but they weren't done with this goodness yet. They followed him and had to know more. And we have a situation, you remember a couple of weeks ago... Um, in, uh, in the Gospel of St. John, we had the story of the woman at the well. And one of the things that we looked at is how God took her from the initial meeting. And by His knowing exactly what to say at what time in this conversation, brought her out of herself and to Himself. And there's a little bit of that going on when these people that follow Him along the way, and I want to show this to you, they follow Him and they meet Jesus as He gets out of the boat. Let me give you a little bit of their conversation at first. Jesus says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes 
but the food which endures to everlasting life, which is which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Okay? And now they say to him, listen to their words, what sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe in you? What, they hadn't seen enough? Think about that. What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, and it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Now listen to how He's bringing them further. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of heaven is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now he just blew their mind. What is he talking about? It raises, and this is what Jesus does in all of us. When he reveals himself to us, it always raises questions. But the questions are designed to offer back to him in response. Because this is the God who desires to further reveal himself by the asking of our questions. And so Jesus says... He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They say to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Do you see how he brought them to a desperation? Now that they're there, he's conditioned them to start receiving the truth about what he wants to teach about this bread of heaven. Because they're pleading with him, give it to us. Deacon Peter, nice and loud. If you would, we're going to read it. I've taken snippets all through John 6 of Christ talking about how He's the bread of life and, and the body and blood and so on and so forth. So bear with me. We're going to read through this. We're going to take it apart in just a minute. Deacon? And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. The Jews then complained about Him because He said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. 
Okay, so what does Jesus use in their questioning to be the springboard for the revelation of who He is and what He offers to give in and through Himself with His own body and blood? Remember what I read to you just a minute ago. They said to Jesus, excuse me, they are thinking our fathers ate the manna in the desert. So they're reflecting back on their spiritual heritage. Okay? They're reflecting back on the Exodus. Remember, we, we, we've discussed this at length in our suffering series, but we're going to look at a couple things because it does relate to this. They were enslaved, the people of Israel. They were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years under the rule and the reign and the tyranny of Pharaoh who had them in bondage in servitude. God sends Moses as his deliverer. We're not going to go through the whole story. We know how they're released by all the plagues. And remember what Jesus, or excuse me, remember what God has Moses tell Pharaoh. He says, let my people go so that they can go and worship me in the wilderness. Okay? So off they go after that last terror that hit Egypt. If you remember correctly from our suffering series, the journey of every Christian is the journey of the entire uh, uh, relationship of God with His people, which all started in the garden, which was a perfect environment where God is sharing Himself. We had the fall. We fell to Satan and we came under the tyranny of a Pharaoh. Satan, if you will. They are released. Where do they go? Into the wilderness. Okay? That they may what? Worship me. That they may, and we can't worship, we talked about this in our suffering series, we can't worship what we do not know. We can't worship a God we do not know. How, do we all, how are we drawn to worship? By the revelation of God. That's the only way we can offer anything, not we of ourselves, but by seeing Him for who He is. We have an object that we know is worthy of worship. And so we offer ourselves. Well, let's talk about this wilderness journey in Exodus. What sustained them every day in the mornings? Manna. What sustained them every evening in the wilderness? Quail. God provided this mysterious bread from heaven that would be on the ground enough for every family of all of His people to eat every morning. It was their sustenance. It kept them alive for the journey, and where was God leading them in the journey? To the promised land, the holy land. To the land that flowed with milk and honey, to this extremely beautiful, fulfilling thing. And by the way, as soon as they crossed over the Jordan River, guess what stopped? The manna and the quail. The manna sustained them for their wilderness journey. I hope the light bulbs are starting to go off a little bit. Because this is the journey of the Christian. We have been freed from the tyranny of Satan, having been washed and cleansed and filled with the Holy Spirit through our baptism. And what is it that sustains our life through this journey on our way to what? Promised land, but more than that. The promised land is not about a piece of property. The promised land is about restored perfect union and intimacy that man shared with God in the first place. Do you get that? Are you making the parallel connection? 
So the manna in the desert was the means that sustained them, kept them alive, offered them life on their journey while God was bringing them to His destination. We need to have Eucharist in our minds as that very thing. Because Jesus says in the Gospel, I am the what of life? I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the desert and they died. I am the one that if you eat of me, you're not going to die. You get it? He's giving the parallel, and not a parallel, that's, that's a wrong word, the fulfillment of the manna in the desert for the wilderness journey is the Eucharist for the Christian journey. Okay, does that make, yes? The word church itself comes from the Greek ekklesia, which means called out. We are the ones called out into the wilderness. We are called out from everybody else into the wilderness, just like the Israelites were called out. Thank you. Wonderful. Wonderful. So now I want to take a few minutes. I'm going to do this relatively quickly because I think you'll see it. Jesus is very obvious about what He's saying. He's not mincing words. He's not doing a parable. He's saying something very literal, very specific about what He intends to offer in His body and blood and who He is for the life of the world. So I'm going to break down some of the verses that you saw read. And the first one is this. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. He's the bread of life. What is the bread of life then? What does that tell us about the purpose of the bread of life? He will never hunger. He will never thirst. What does that mean to us? Sustains. Sustains. We will never lack anything that we need if we remain in Him and eat and drink of what He provides, so to speak, right? Look at verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. Anyone who eats the bread will what? Live forever. Did we not just pray that in Mass? Yes. Everlasting life. These words. And Jesus says, He who eats of my flesh will live forever. For the bread I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Okay? When it says He'll give for the life of the world, let's remember who's speaking. Is this not the divine Word of God that was there in the beginning? How did things come into existence? By His what? He spoke them into existence. And when He created Adam and Eve, He did one step further. He didn't just bring them into existence. He did what? He breathed what into them? If He says that He who eats of my flesh I give life to, this is the Word of God who's always been the giver of life. And we call Him that in the Orthodox Church over and over and over again. The giver of life. The giver of life. Okay? Look at verse 53. Now He's going to take it from the other side as well. He says, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no what? Life in you. 
Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Now I want you to get into the minds of the Hebrews before I even go on. What are they thinking? Houston, we have a problem. When God gave the law, cannibalism was a big no-no. <laughs> that was not to do. Right? But listen to how literal he's being. My flesh is food. My blood is drink. And if you eat of it, you have life. If you don't eat of it, you do not have life. It's pretty, pretty clear, right? Sometimes... We hear the words of Christ and don't realize how very literal and easy they are to understand. This is one of those cases where it's pretty easy to understand what he's saying and he is being literal about it. Okay? Verse 66, look down at that. This did become a problem because it says, For that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Because I didn't want you to. He set up that spike. Trust me, I set up that spike. Allow me to read to you. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But our patron saint... Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus was being so literal, not pulling punches and making sure they understood this is no parable. He wasn't saying the kingdom of God is like. He was describing to them something very literal about the kingdom of God without a parable. And because of that, to their ears, it sounded like cannibalism. So he lost many disciples that day because of just how literal he was being. Okay? What he is saying is absolutely and specifically spot on to what his purpose was through the offering of his body and blood. Now, <clears throat> turn to the page, if you will. I do think you have this. We're going to start going through some of the church fathers. You've heard our prayers in Mass. You've heard the Gospel of St. John in chapter 6 and what Jesus says the Eucharist is and the purposes of it. Now let's listen to the continuation of the teaching of the church fathers beyond the apostolic. Because we have the apostolic. And we, have the, we have the epistles and so on. We have the gospels. And I'm going to take you once again, as I said, I'm going to give you one church father from almost every generation in the first five generations. And I want you to see the consistency of the message. And also what we learn from the continued revelation of God about what he does in and through his body and blood, the Eucharist. We start with St. Ignatius of Antioch. St. Ignatius of Antioch literally was the next generation after the Apostle John. In fact, he was directly discipled by the same one that wrote the Gospel you just heard from. And St. Ignatius, and he also was the third bishop of Antioch. The first was our patron St. Peter. Yeah, I think he was only there for a few years, then he moved on. I can't remember the second, but he is the third bishop of Antioch. Here is what he says. Come together in common, one and all without exception in love, in one faith, 
and in one Jesus Christ, and break one bread, which is the medicine of immortality and the antidote against death, enabling us to live forever in Jesus Christ. Why do you think he calls it the medicine of immortality and the antidote against death? What did his mentor teach him? He who eats of my bread has what? Life and life everlasting. He who does not, does not have life. The result is death. He's just putting it in different words. The Eucharist is the medicine of immortality. It's that which assures us of remaining in Him by the grace of God. And saves us from death by that union. Okay? That's St. Ignatius of Antioch. Let's go to the next generation. St. Irenaeus. Another bishop, and this time he is a disciple of Polycarp. Now, Ignatius and Polycarp were directly discipled by John together. Okay? This is a disciple of Polycarp. So that very next generation, St. Irenaeus says this, For we offer to him his own, announcing consistently... By the way, when it says we offer to him his own... He made the bread in the first place. He made us in the first place. We offer to Him His own. Announcing consistently the fellowship and union of the flesh and spirit. For as the bread that is produced from the earth, when it receives the invocation of God, is no longer common bread, but the Eucharist, consisting of two realities, earthly and heavenly. So also our bodies, when they receive the Eucharist, are no longer corruptible, having the hope of the resurrection to eternity. Now, in this class, and forgive me, catechumens and inquirers that have not been here, in this class we have been talking about a theology that runs beginning in chapter 1, where you, and you hear that read, John chapter 1, at the end of every Mass, where very specifically we're getting this understanding of the Incarnation. Okay? And the Church has always believed that this is how the incarnational formula, so to speak, so we can kind of understand this revelation, that in Jesus, one person, not two people, not one holy person and another holy person that's human, but in Jesus Christ there is one person, and in that one person is completely the divine, He is God, and He 100% took on man. He is also of the human nature. And they are joined together with Him. In the same way that he, is, he has within Himself the divine will. But guess what else He has? The broken human will. And the church teaches us that if Jesus Christ was two persons, then we can never be saved. Because the two have never been joined. Okay? But in Jesus Christ, since the divine is now joined to the human nature and vice versa... That's how our salvation occurs. We are brought into Him. Didn't we pray that we may dwell in Him and He in us? Right? And that is how our salvation is wrought. So even within the Christian now, there is the divine and the human nature. We have been, we have been made partakers of the divine nature. Scripture is very plain about that. Our salvation is wrought, out, is wrought by remaining in Him. And becoming more and more over time like the divine that is the seed of God within us. 
Okay? So listen to what St. Irenaeus is saying. That even in the bread, the means of grace for us, after he blesses it, he takes the earthly and he joins it to the what? The divine. The heavenly. He brings himself uniting it with the earthly so that both come into us for our redemption. Okay? That makes sense. To a degree. It's a mystery. It's not going to make perfect sense, but I want you to know the truth. Let's look at St. Theodore of Heraclea. This is in AD 281. He says, To be sure, the manna of those who ate it in the desert nourished the body for a little while, but it did not contribute anything to the soul to help it live virtuously and nobly. But the living bread recovered the souls of the believers and procured real life to the world. Where your fathers ate manna in the desert and died. This is uniquely different. This is a fulfillment. When they eat of the bread of life, it procures my virtues into them. You see? I come into them. Now I want to read to you. I did not print this one out. It's a little bit longer. And it's St. Ephraim the Syrian who is the Bishop of Alexandria. I'm sorry, ignore that. St. Ephraim the Syrian, A.D. 300s. A little bit longer, stay with it, because it really is beautiful when you hear it. He taught our Lord Jesus Christ took bread in His hands, plain bread at the beginning, and blessed it, and sanctified it in the name of the Father and in the name of the Spirit. And He broke and distributed it in morsels to His disciples in His kindness. He called the bread His living body, and He filled it with Himself and with His Spirit. He stretched forth His hand and gave them the bread that His right, that is, excuse me, that his right hand had sanctified. Take, eat, all of you, of this bread that My Word has sanctified. Do not regard it as bread, what I have given to you now. Eat it and do not disdain its crumbs. For this bread that I have sanctified is my body. Its least crumb sanctifies thousands of thousands and is capable of giving life to all who eat it. Take, eat in faith, doubting not at all that this is my body. And he who eats it in faith eats it in fire and in the Spirit. If anyone doubts and eats it, it's plain bread to him. He who believes and eats the bread sanctified in my name, if he is pure, it will keep him pure. If he is a sinner, he will be forgiven. He, however, who despises it or spurns it, he may be sure that he is insulting the Son who has called the bread his body and truly made it so. Receive of it, eat of it, all of you, and eat it in the Holy Spirit. For it is truly my body, and he who eats will live forever. Take and eat all of you. In this bread, you're eating my body. It is the true source of forgiveness. I love that statement. Even the crumb saves thousands of thousands. The power of God unto salvation given through the stuff of earth, which is nothing new that Christ, our God, the Holy Trinity, hasn't done throughout all of creation. He healed through a piece of wood. He quenched their thirst from a rock. He takes the stuff of creation and does the wonders of heaven. Finally, last one. You have this one. St. Cyril of Alexandria, Bishop of Alexandria in the 400s. In effect, Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life, not bodily bread, which merely eliminates physical suffering brought on by hunger, but rather that bread that refashions the entire living being to eternal life 
The human being who had been created for eternal life is now given power over death. Now you hear all of these things. You hear our prayers. We say our prayers. You hear what Jesus says about the Eucharist. And you hear the first 400 years plus of the Father saying the same thing, but just understanding it more and more fully over time and seeing what God is doing in the lives of people through this. So let me ask you a question. With all of this in mind, how do you approach receiving it every time we get together? What is your approach? If we are coming to the God who wants to grant forgiveness of sins, if we're coming to the God who breathes His life into us through the Eucharist, joining us and giving us eternal life through this as we, if we remain in Him. But also remembering Deacon Peter in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what was going wrong. Remember? They're approaching it in an unholy way. What was happening? They were treating it like, if I remember right, they were treating it like it was magic. That's, that's one thing, yeah. They're approaching it in an unholy way, and Paul says what? This is why some of you are what? Are sick, and some of you are falling asleep. You eat and drink of, it, of your own damnation. He says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there was a problem. People were coming with unforgiveness in their heart to one another. They were coming as drunkards to get to the wine. They were. That's what it says. They wanted to get in line first so they could have the biggest sweep. It was happening. And some of them, because they were coming to the Eucharist in an unholy manner, an irreverent manner, some were falling asleep, not dozing off. Some were sick. Christ is fully present. How are we approaching this? It's an honest question for us to ask ourselves because it's very good for all of us who have been orthodox for quite a long time. Sometimes we need to regain some good form, some good practice. Deacon, you have something? I was just trying to remember where in Scripture it says if you have a conflict with your brother, step away from the altar and and leave it. Leave it. Do not come back until you have done that. Yeah. So while the offering of Christ through the Eucharist is absolutely an offering of life, don't forget the Christ who gives life is no less the perfect judge of the soul. We can't forget that. In fact, that's one of the things I love about the, the Sinai Christ icon. Y'all, y'all, if y'all paid attention to the Sinai Christ icon. I'll mute it next time. It may be hard to see from here, but I want you to look at it. If you can't see it real well, come later. When you look at this icon of Christ in the person of Christ, on one side and another side of his face are two distinctly different looks that are there to teach us something. That our Lord is at one, the giver of life, the bestower of grace. God is love and mercy and all of these things. But we cannot deny the fact that the same God is the God who will separate the sheep and the goats in the end. 
And so you have the portrait of both. And, uh -huh. Yeah. In, in the prayer of St. Ephraim, you read, we take, take it in fire and the spirit. Fire yeah. can keep you warm, or fire can burn. It can. <clears throat> it can. I ask that question because I, I, it's too important. The church gives us the means by which to prepare our souls to be joined to God. To receive this incredible and holy event where the God of our resurrection and the person of Jesus Christ lifes us with bread and wine that has become body and blood. Okay? So have a look real quick at what I handed to you. I have offered you some prayers. Prayers of preparation for Mass. These are both, some of them are for home. Some of them to be done in the narthex. Unlike sometimes, I love you, but, some, but unlike sometimes in the narthex, the narthex is not a fellowship hall. If we do that, it's okay. Not going to burn for it, but it's not to be that. The narthex is truly the room of preparation where we come in and we prayerfully prepare to enter into the nave, the ark of salvation, to offer ourselves and to receive the offering of Christ. That's why we have the icons in there. That's why we have two prayer kneelers in there. Look at the scene. It's a place of prayer. That's the purpose of the narthex. So let's have a look at some of these prayers. And I've given them to you. You can do whatever you want with them as far as how you use them, but use them. Pray. Commune with God in these prayers. The first one, for the spirit of prayer. Almighty God, who pourest out on all who desire it the spirit of thy grace and supplication, deliver us when we draw nigh to thee from coldness of heart, from wanderings of mind, that with steadfast thoughts and kindly affections we may worship thee in spirit and truth through Jesus Christ our Lord. My friends, we come to worship every time. I don't care whether it's a Vesper service, Matin service, or Eucharist. We come to worship coming from who knows what experience in life. With how many distractions on our mind on any time we come to gather together. And this prayer centers us with steadfast thoughts. Help us from coldness of heart, wanderings of mind. Help us focus. Be present with you as you're present with us. The prayer of St. John of Damascus. And this is the preparation prayer to receive Eucharist. O Lord and Master Jesus Christ our God, who alone hath power to forgive the sins of men, do thou, O good one who lovest mankind, forgive all the sins that I have committed in knowledge or in ignorance, and make me worthy to receive without condemnation thy divine, glorious, immaculate, and life-giving mysteries. Not unto punishment or unto increase of sin, but unto purification and sanctification and a promise of thy kingdom and the life to come. As a protection and a help to overthrow the adversaries and to blot out my many sins. For thou art a God of mercy and compassion and love toward mankind. And unto thee we ascribe glory together with the Father and the Holy Spirit now and unto ages of ages. Amen. It's a great prayer to prepare your soul before you come or in the narthex to receive Eucharist. Thanksgiving for the church.
O God, whose glory fills the skies, I laud and praise Thy holy name for all the blessings brought to me and to all Thy holy church, especially for our own parish. I bless Thee for the gifts of faith, knowledge, and of a whole mind, for the grace and membership of and joy of fellowship. May the operation of Thy sacraments knit us to all Thee, to, the, to Thee in grace, that we may be able without fear or hesitation to behold Thy wonders in nature. We're praying now corporately for one another as well of our that I join with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And finally, the prayer upon entering into a church when you come in from the narthex, it's be a wonderful little prayer to either have on a card or to memorize. When we come from the narthex into the nave, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. And in thy fear, I will worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. And make thy way straight before me, that with a clear mind I may glorify thee forever. One divine power worshipped in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I offer you those prayers so that you may prepare. Because I think it's so important how we condition our souls. And not at the last minute. Obviously, we're to, what does Paul say? We pray without what? Ceasing. But certainly when we approach these incredible mysteries and offerings. And I'm going to cover one more thing. We're going to go five more minutes on this because it's important. One of the questions that you all turned in, the inquirers and the catechumens, I think it's important to revisit this for everyone as well. Deacon Peter shared with me that one of the questions is, when should I abstain from Eucharist entirely on a particular day? That is one of the greatest questions you can ask because there are times we should but I want to get some of your thoughts. I've got, I've got some things. Okay, When do you think you should abstain from taking Eucharist? Give me some thoughts. When you're not in love and charity with your neighbor. When you're not in love and charity with your neighbor. So let's go for, forward with that. When we have unforgiveness in our hearts. In fact, Peter just, Deacon Peter just said it just a few minutes ago. If we have a problem with our neighbor, what do we do? We leave everything at the altar. And we go and deal with the relationship first. Then we come back. Right? So when we have unforgiveness in our heart, there's broken relationship. This table, this Eucharist, is not only a Eucharist of unity between God and His people, it is, a, it is a unity of God in His people, through His people, to His people. It's all of us as well. We're one. If that's broken, we got to stop for a second. Right? Right? Okay, so unforgiveness and the lack of charity in our hearts towards one another. What about unrepentant sin? If someone has dedicated themselves to a pattern of sin with no repentance in their heart at a particular time, how can we come to this table? How can we come to this table? What else? When you haven't fasted. If you haven't fasted, the Eucharistic fast. Now, Remember the Eucharistic fast, the, the spiritual rule of the church is that we eat nothing before coming to Eucharist. Now, everybody here knows that's not possible for some people. Okay, Some people have to have a little bit of food to take medication their bodies need. So what do we do? We take the least amount we can that we need to, and that's still keeping the fast. 
But if we load it up with IHOP before we came, <laughs> you might want to abstain from Eucharist that day. Right? Okay. Now let me help you with some discernment points. This forgiveness issue is a tough one. How many of you know we need grace to forgive? When I counsel many of you who have struggled with unforgiveness at a time, if I know and you know and we're together in knowing that your heart so desperately wants to forgive, that you're not holding a person in anger and hatred and refusing, then I tell you, come to the Eucharist, but keep working with me. And we have to work on this until it's completed. It's when I find a person denying, pursuing forgiveness, that they're so hard in their heart over either what's been done to them by somebody, that's when I say, let's, let's hold off on Eucharist for a little while. Does that make sense? It's the same thing with repentant and unrepentant sin. Not, there's not one person in this room that doesn't sin. No one would be coming to the Eucharist if, that, if, if it was based on that. It's the key of repentant and unrepentant. We are here because this is a hospital for sinners. To bandage up our wounds and to be healed. So if we're in the process, our souls are in the process of being healed... We keep taking Eucharist. It's when we refuse to repent and say, no, I'm going to live this way. And that's that. You're not going to receive Eucharist during that time. Not because the church says you can't receive Eucharist, but because you have turned away. And we say, okay, thy will be done for a time. Come back in repentance and receive. You get the difference? Deacon? Last week we talked in our catechism class, we talked about canon law and how perhaps the most severe penalty that can be exercised under canon law is excommunication. But what it is, is it's not the church saying you cannot receive. If you ever actually see a formal decree of excommunication, it says, by your actions, you have removed yourself from communion. And we hope and sincerely pray for your repentance and return. But it's by our own actions. That, exactly. that we remove ourselves. Yeah. And the church barely recognizes that. And, and why? Think about this. Let's bring this now back to the Eucharist, and I'll close with this. It's a good thought to, to bring it down. Eucharist isn't magic. I don't take body and blood into me and poof, eternal life. It's the grace of eternal life. What must I do? Remain in Him. It's relational, not contractual. You've heard me say this many times. It's a covenant of love. Love demands the will of two people willing towards one another. And God is always willing towards us. The question is on our end. And when the two loves unite and the wills are together, then through that body and blood, the bread and the wine, we are lifed by Jesus Christ. Our sins are washed away. And we are given grace to overcome ourselves and our adversary and to experience the fullness of the kingdom of God now and eternally. My prayer for you is you will take what I have printed out for you. Read the Father's. Go back and read the Gospel of St. John. Reflect on it a little bit. And let's be reawakened to all that God is doing in our midst every time we gather together 
for the divine liturgy. Let's stand.